Well, happy Easter. He is risen. He's risen indeed. When we were gathered for worship together, there was a fair amount of scripture to the message I'm about to give. And so I had Curtis read it just to provide an extra voice. But today, lucky you, it's just me. So let's dive right in. We're starting in Matthew chapter 27, verse 59. Joseph took the body of Jesus and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn in the rock. Then he rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he's been raised from the dead, and the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. The stone is massive. Beyond that, it's sealed. These barriers put in place by the disciples and the Romans because each has a concern Jesus's body will be stolen, though for different reasons. Now, some of you are ready. This is an Easter sermon. Let's get with those women to the early tomb. You know, I'm an early morning person too, and so let's just get to that happy part. But we're not walking with the women just yet. Because first, I want to talk about the barriers. The barriers to life. They exist all around us and within us. We know that this grief, this stress, this anxiety, this depression, this fear, workaholism, perfectionism, this isn't life. We know that racism and xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, hate-fueled violence, white nationalism, minimum wage, war, oppressive regimes, they're barriers to life. They block life like the stone, and they sometimes feel just as heavy, just as impossible to move. We recognize these are barriers to life because we know at a gut level that life is wholeness, healing, joy, connectedness, care, and not just for me, not just for you, but for everyone. And that gut level connection we have and that desire for life, it's just one facet of being made in God's own image. God made us for life. What barriers are you feeling the weight of today? What realities feel as heavy as the stone? The thing is, God has always been a barrier-moving, life-giving God. Let's take this a step further and keep in the Easter tradition of turning to Leviticus chapter 25. It's a really long chapter, and we're not going to read every bit of it, but we are going to read some chunks of it. So starting in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land I'm giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Jumping to verse 8. 
you shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land and you shall hallow the 50th year and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you all. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth, or harvest the unpruned vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. Verse 20. Should you ask, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will order my blessing for you in the sixth year, so it will yield a crop for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you'll be eating from the old crop until the ninth year when its produce come in and you will eat the old. Verse 25, if anyone in your kin falls into difficulty and sells a piece of property, then the next of kin shall come and redeem what the relative has sold. But if there are not sufficient means to recover it, what was sold will remain with the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, the land will be released and the property will be returned. Now, we're going to jump down at this point to verse 54, but just know that verses 29 to 53 detail the means by which every property and person can be redeemed, as well as the directions that they would have that happen to be released and returned. And every piece of property and person is also instructed to be returned at the year of Jubilee. And so then the chapter closes this way, verse 54. And if indentured laborers have not been redeemed in any of these ways named above, they and their children with them shall go free in the Jubilee year. For to me, the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. This chapter outlines that every seven years was a Sabbath year and seven rounds of seven years were meant to be Jubilee. Super Sabbath. Sabbath is meant to bring things to an intentional end. That's true if it's a weekly one, resting from our daily tasks. It's also true if it's the seventh year. And this one's interesting because in the seventh year, the land gets a Sabbath. And that's fascinating to me because overworked land won't produce food. And so God is removing a potential barrier to life for the people, famine. But also, this would mean that the people's lives in year seven would be radically restful. For subsistence farmers, this scales down their workload tremendously. God is removing a barrier to life, overworked people. Because people who are unsure if they have enough of what they need cannot live how God made them to live. And then God even reminds them and anchors this whole section in their rescue from Egypt. No Pharaoh, no sea. Is too great. God has always been a barrier moving, sea parting, life giving God. And the pinnacle of this whole idea is Jubilee, because now every barrier to life is meant to be removed by eliminating indebtedness. Every person is meant to return to their home, their people, their work. And this all happened through a process called redemption. 
The redeemer is a person who would pay the debt on behalf of the person who was stuck and thereby restore them back to where they were before. Were you to go back and read the full chapter of Leviticus 25, redeem is in there 11 times. But Jubilee was like next level. It was everyone opting into redemption. Jubilee is the comprehensive process of giving life. Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay says, The Jubilee once again puts some things back to square one, rather than leaving people permanently oppressed by debts from which they can never recover. It gives people a new start. But as best we can tell, Jubilee was never practiced. In the original Jubilee, part of the offer, the invitation, I would argue, is for those who have indentured labor, for those who are lenders, to practice trusting God as provider by releasing the security of that labor and repayment. It's the removal of a barrier to life for them too, the barrier of looking to money for protection, the barrier of relying on oneself instead of learning you can trust God to take care of you. And so this would let them reconnect with God as life giver and sustainer and care provider for them instead of having wealth be what they really trust. But no one with the power was willing to make the sacrifice. No one with the authority was willing to cancel the debt. They couldn't imagine that level of redemption. God made humanity for life, not the dry technical kind of life, but the rich experiential kind. And when that was disrupted, then God began to work to bring us back to original goodness, to wholeness, to what was intended to redeem humanity. Even before Christ, God was our redeemer, and our lives were intended to be stories of redemption. We were meant to be jubilee people. You hear it beyond Leviticus in passages like Isaiah 44. This is verse 21. It says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God has always been a barrier-moving, sea-parting, sin-sweeping, life-giving God. One more thing about Jubilee is that it isn't limited to a moment. It's a movement of redemption. It can be expressed across time and culture. And so people have, as John Golden Gay says, taken the Jubilee vision and applied it in fresh ways to their context. For us at Pomona Valley Church, Jubilee and Easter make this clear. The response of the redeemed is to follow the risen Jesus into the world together, removing every barrier to life for those we encounter along the way. Around here, we say we want to live the one another's and neighbor well and do justice. So when we say we want to live the one another's, we mean we're going to care for each other and befriend each other in order to remove barriers to life for one another, like loneliness. When we say we neighbor well, we mean that we're going to remove barriers to life for the folks we cross paths with week to week as best we can. And when we say we want to do justice, we mean dismantling systems that lead to death, both literally and metaphorically, but yet very real. This is why we gather around tables every week, even if they're virtual right now. This is why, as a church, our anniversary celebration was to collect an offering that would then be given to three nonprofits that are tackling significant issues of injustice. This is why, as a church, we used our year-end giving to establish a care fund. 
These are jubilee efforts trying to remove the barriers to life. Jubilee is so powerful because beyond the context of land and labor for the world, for our own selves, we find we're in need of a redeemer. We find ourselves facing barriers to life all the time. Debt and depression, sickness and shame, overworking the land and overworking ourselves, trauma, loneliness, oppression, sin and its effects keep us from life in ways big and small, personal and collective. This larger effect, this sense of sin as a force, it runs throughout the Bible. It's a power over the world, over humanity, something bigger than just my choices. For example, the scholar Marianne My Thompson notes how Paul expresses this as just one instance we could look to. She says, and I'm quoting now, one of the particularly striking features of Paul's presentation of the plight of humankind is that he tends to speak not of sins in the plural, but of sin in the singular. He personifies sin as a power. People are under the power of sin. It exercises dominion over them and dwells in them, and they are enslaved to it or are simply under sin. And sin leads to death. Captive to the power of sin, enslaved to it, human beings need a deliverer, a savior, someone who can break the power of sin, who can set us free from it. It's not that Paul denies that sins need to be forgiven, but that the problem is something far more deeply rooted. Sinners sin because they've become captive to the power of sin. They need liberation. Liberation. Freedom. We need someone to remove the barriers that prevent life. In other words, we need a redeemer who has the authority to declare jubilee. And we need that person to be willing to pay what freedom from sin and death costs. Listen now to Luke. This is chapter 4, starting in verse 16. When Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee. Perhaps the first real enactment of it. Long before the cross, Jesus announces that he's come to redeem us. As he teaches and touches, eats, heals, clarifies, corrects, speaks to the powerful, draws nearer to the powerless, all of it sends this message, you will not be permanently oppressed by debts from which you can never recover. I'll pay them. You will not be permanently stuck under the power of sin and death. Someone with the authority to remove the debts comes as redeemer, and they are willing to make the sacrifice that would remove the barriers to life for all of us. Jubilee. 
because God has always been a barrier-moving, sea-parting, sin-sweeping, jubilee-enacting, life-giving God. Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. N.T. Wright, by the way, makes the point that the land is the first to acknowledge that a barrier has been removed. And I think back then to Jubilee, where the first note is the Sabbath for the land, because this is the redemption of all things in Christ. So there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message to you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So great is God's desire for our redemption. So powerful is God's authority that no stone, no matter how large, no seal, no matter how imposing the government who placed it, will keep him from breaking the final barrier, the power of sin and death. Jesus not only re-enters life, he charts a path for all of us to follow him there so that now we don't go to death. It's not a barrier anymore. Instead, like Jesus, we go through it to life. God has always been a barrier-moving, sea-parting, sin-sweeping, jubilee-enacting, stone-rolling, life-giving God. There is no barrier too great because our Redeemer lives. Amen.